What's up, everybody? Good to see you. Um, it's a big weekend. Today is Andy's birthday. Happy birthday, Andy, wherever you went. Yeah. I won't lead us. Yeah. Woo. I won't lead us in a collective uh, happy birthday. Um, but maybe you guys could go sing it to him one by one uh, as you're exiting here. Um, the other big thing is the summit officially turned five yesterday. So, uh, yeah, that's exciting too. Yeah, that's, it's okay to like respond here, okay? It's okay to be excited. Um, five years ago, we met in my living room for the very first time. There were 12 of us, and uh, we, you know, we've said this a lot, but uh, we met in my living room. Uh, we talked about how we would be a, a gospel community on mission for Jesus, the city of Denver and the world, and then we ate some cake, I think, that my wife made, and then we played Settlers of Catan. So it was a, it was, the church has changed a lot since then, um, even though we still love all those things, not just the gospel community mission, uh, but cake and Settlers of Catan as well. Um, we're in the middle of the series. We're talking about what unites us, kind of where we've been, but also where we're going uh, in the next five years. And really for us, um, you know, I said this last week, as one of your leaders, I don't want to just kind of give you information. I really want to give you kind of where I'm particularly burdened for us and these particular values as we move forward. And we're going to talk about community this morning. Um, as we talk about community, really my burden is that we wouldn't just be desirous of community, but we would be desirous of a particular kind of community, that, that we would be a people in the next five years that don't just sort of like drink the cultural Kool-Aid that says we should have this vague, positive kind of connotation towards community, but we should have a really clear definition that we're not satisfied until we uh, enjoy or, uh, or uh, find. And uh, for me, here, here's kind of what this burden is birthed out of, is I feel like community is one of those things that, uh, just kind of from my observations of the city, we, we all sort of collectively affirm, but we don't really have a very clear definition of. Um, and maybe just even for that to make sense, what it reminds me of the most is like the gluten-free movement. Um, now, let me just say this on the front end. There's, you guys are super educated. I'm sure you're not like everybody else outside the room. And so a lot of you know like what it means to be gluten-free. You know what gluten is even. Um, but here's my observation. You go to restaurants throughout our city. Almost every restaurant has a gluten-free section of the menu. People have vaguely positive connotations about gluten-free. They're like, okay, well, it means that I'm healthy, right? But then if you ask the dreaded question of like, well, what does it actually mean to be gluten-free? I think like 1% of the population would be able to answer that actual question. In fact, I'm not sure if any of you watched Jimmy Kimmel Live, but about a year ago, uh, they sent people out to gyms around Los Angeles, and they asked people the question of like, do you eat a gluten-free diet? And here's these people like decked out in their Lululemon workout outfits, and you know, they're super healthy, like, oh yeah, I absolutely, don't put gluten in my body, I know exactly what's going in my body, I know exactly what I don't put in my body. And then like the very dreaded question came, well like, what exactly is gluten? And like every single person sort of pauses and awkwardly like talks around it, and then they finally have to be like, I don't know. And um, yeah, I feel like that way with community. Like community is such a positive thing now. I talk with so many disgruntled people who've just moved to the city, and they don't have community, and they're desirous of community. Almost every new business is, that's starting the city kind of uses community as some sort of buzzword and a mission statement or any sort of advertisement, like we're about these things. But then you push people, and you're like, okay, well, what exactly is this community thing that you're desirous of? And it's kind of like the gluten-free thing. People are like, I don't know. I'm kind of for it, but I don't really know exactly what it, what it is. And, and for me, like, I'm not just trying to be like, culturally cute or anything like that. For me, I, I just think there's real ramifications when we don't have very clear definitions. And I think particularly as it pertains to community, there's a couple of ramifications for this that a lot of you have experienced. Um, for some of us, uh, for us, we sort of settle for counterfeits because we don't have a clear definition, because we don't know what the real thing is. We'll settle for something less. And, uh, you know, for me, that really burdens me. It's like just in the same way that I see people like eat Skittles and they assume that Skittles are good for them because it says it's a gluten-free product on the packaging. Like in the same way, some of you like have given yourself wholly and primarily 
necessarily to a community that is actually something less than God says like he desires for your life. So, so we don't want to settle for counterfeits. But for some of us, like we won't settle down until we find a unicorn. And, and what I mean by that, you're like, unicorn, isn't that like a mythical creature that doesn't exist in reality? Exactly. And there's a lot of us that kind of have these vague positive connotations about community, but we haven't really defined it. And sort of those positive connotations have been informed by books we've read and disgruntled people posting on Facebook and on other social media sites and movies we've watched. And we kind of have this unrealistic expectation of this community that will make all my wildest dreams come true and it won't demand anything of me whatsoever and you haven't found it yet and you're really like disappointed that you haven't found it yet. And so you're hopping from church to church, from city to city, from roommate situation to roommate situation because you won't settle down until you find something. The catch is that that something that you're trying to find uh, doesn't actually exist in reality. It's a unicorn. Now, uh, for us, what we need then is a clear definition of what God says uh, we should be desiring if you're pursuing community and really for us as a church, the type of community that we should be. And the really cool thing, we need a definition and this is amazing about the Bible. Like, we have this huge need, and the Bible's actually going to meet it. Isn't that amazing? The Bible's just this incredible, incredible book. It's why I love us teaching on a weekly basis. The Bible's going to give us this very clear picture of the three pillars that characterize a healthy, godly community. And so we're going to walk through this and have Paul speak in our lives. For us as, who are part of the church, I would encourage you to say, like, do these things mark us? For those of you who are thinking about joining the church, I would say, like, do these things characterize your life? If not, like, where are you going to belong that has this characterize your life? So we're going to look at these three characteristics right here. Now, the first one is this, is we need a community with a specific identity. We need a community with a specific identity. Now, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, let's just pause right here. For some of you, um, probably for most of you in this room, your immediate kind of uh, uh, propensity is to just kind of be like, yeah, 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 like tell me what I need to do, right? Like you're the person who almost, like you get an email at work and it starts with like a compliment. And you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I know, yeah. Like, what do I need to do? What did I screw up? What do I, tell me what exactly it is I need to do. Like, Paul doesn't write that way, okay? He's not, like, saying something nice so he can, like, hammer you later. He's delivering to you truth. And this is what's so profound about the truth that he's delivering here. This is why we need to camp out on this for a little bit. He's saying that for us as a church, before our identity is found in what we do, uh, instead, our identity is found in whose we are. We looked at this last week, that for us, like, we should find our dignity, our value, and worth not in what we do, not what people around us say about us. And for us as a community, we shouldn't find our identity first in like uh, what we protest or what we're for or the social activity we do in the city, but instead we find our identity in whose we are. We are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us that he's lived as we should have lived, he's died as we should have died, he's resurrected in our place to do for us what we can't do. And it gifts us this precious, unshakable identity that is not based on our own performance, but rather the performance of Jesus in our place that was finished 2,000 years ago. Now, here's why this matters. Let me, let me talk particularly to those of you who might be exploring joining this church or might be exploring Christianity um, Here's why this matters so much, is that you and I, we have the propensity to find our identity uh, horizontally when we really should be finding it vertically. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense, and that sounds a lot like a Dr. Seuss poem, so let me, like, break it down here a little bit, okay? You and I, we have this propensity to find our identity horizontally when we should be finding it 
vertically. What I mean is our identity, like who, what makes us who we are, what we do, our value, our worth, our natural propensity is to look at the people around us, look at the jobs that we have, look at the causes that we take up, look at, the, look at our hobbies, and kind of say, that is the thing that gives me my dignity and value and worth. And we're clamoring either to perform to such a degree or to have somebody recognize us to make us feel like we're a good enough person and we're, we're beautiful enough and we're talented enough and we're accepted and we can be just kind of content with who we are. Now, for those of you who are doing this, let me just kind of warn you because one of two things is going to happen. Um, either you're going to find that the positive identity you desire, the, like the things that you're hoping for, are going to perpetually elude you. Now, here's what's really frustrating about this, is like, we hope that we're attractive enough. We're hoping that somebody will say to us, like, you are beautiful, and then all of a sudden we get compared to somebody who's a little bit more beautiful, even like a supermodel. You ladies get compared to this all the time, and it like really frustrates you. Can I get an amen, right? And you're, you're like, like, okay, like, so I'm getting compared to this woman who's like, literally that picture was photoshopped, and she's had like $10,000 worth of work done last week, and like, I'm not beautiful. Like some of you with your jobs, like you want to be the best and you want this boss to kind of say, you, like, well done, good and faithful servant. But then all of a sudden there's this person who's a little bit hungrier, doing a little bit more than you, and all of a sudden you're finding like you're not good enough. Or even, like here's the most amazing thing, as you actually realize that dream of this positive identity that you are the most beautiful or you are the most successful or you are the most talented or you do make money or your parents finally do approve of you. And then all of a sudden it gets taken away from you because you get a little bit older and your skills diminish a little bit, and your fa- looks fade a little bit. Like, I saw this, you know, the Broncos are playing the playoff game today, right? We all collectively know this. And, uh, yeah, that's the thing you got the most excited about. I know, I'm excited too, so I'm not ju- I love football. So, um, you know, I was actually at the playoff game last year. I go to, like, one Broncos game a year. I haven't gone this year, but I was at the playoff game last year, and uh, we got smoked by the Colts. I don't think it's going to happen today, but I was there. I'm still a little bit traumatized. That's why I haven't been to a game since then. And, uh, you know, Peyton Manning... Peyton Manning, um, our quarterback, five-time MVP winning Peyton Manning, Super Bowl champion Peyton Manning, probably one of the two or three greatest quarterbacks who ever lived, Peyton Manning, throws an interception in the second quarter, and I'll never forget, Mile High starts booing him, and then there's this guy two rows in front of me that yells out to our coach, get that bum off the field. Like, oh, it happens that quickly. Oh, 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 like five-time MVP winning Peyton Manning is now a bum who should be benched. Right? And a lot of you feel that. Like, a lot of you feel the fragility of, like, you finally get that identity that you clamored for, and one mistake, one wrong turn, one, one moment where you fail to live up to the expectations of another, and it's taken away from you. Man, it's terrible to live under that fragility, isn't it? So you'll experience that. You'll experience the positive identities perpetually eluding you, or you'll experience the negative identities always sticking with you. And a lot of you know what this means to have made a mistake in your past or have a nickname when you were growing up or to do something when you were in middle school or high school or college and have that thing that happened to you, that thing that you did, be part of your identity for the rest of your life, and you're perpetually trying to run away from it. Now, I'll just even give you an example from my own life because the embarrassing examples from your own life are always the best examples. Am I right? Um, like when I was in high school, I was not a good student. I was an athlete and, um, I had a nickname, stupid jock, um, because in high school we just try to like destroy each other, right? I don't know why we do that, but we do. And, um, goodness, I remember like I went off to college and like when I was in college and I was like 
pretty interested in academics, and I was, I was doing um, a little bit better in school, and I remember coming back and hanging out with my friends for the first time since going off to college. I don't know if any of you have had that experience. It's a weird thing, like you've gone off, and you've kind of become a new person, and then you come back and you hang out at the old places that you used to hang out with. I'm in the middle of, you know, we're kind of updating our lives, and I'm talking about like what's happened to me, and uh, I'm like, you know, like it's kind of crazy. Like I actually read books now, and uh, I actually do my homework, and I don't cheat anymore, and like I'm actually learning things, and I might actually even go on and like try to get another degree. And uh, I'm like in the middle of explaining this, and a friend of mine, I still remember his name, I haven't seen him probably since that moment, I won't say it since we're podcasting all this, but um, he says to me in that moment, he says, you can't do that, you stupid jock. I was like, thanks for the encouragement, buddy. You know, like, what are you saying? Like, a lot of you have experienced that. A lot of you experience you did something or you were somebody or you made a mistake and it kind of haunts you from, like, city to city or relationship to relationship or even job interview to job interview, and that's the challenge. Like, that's a challenge when you're finding your ultimate value and worth and dignity. Like, do I matter if you're trying to find that horizontally in what you do or what people say about you? And, and the beautiful aspect of the gospel, it says that the most important thing about who you are is not what you do and it's not what people say about you, but it's what God has declared true in you through the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that you are, like Paul's reminding you here in this moment, that we are chosen, that we are holy, and that we are beloved. And here's the really beautiful thing about this. As you need that, here's what Paul's saying on the front end of this. It's like you don't just need that individually. Like, you need this corporately as well. Like, you need to belong to a family of men and women who are pushing one another to actually believe this in the ebb and flow of our daily lives. And here's what I believe. I don't believe, like, you should quit every other community you belong to. Like, your job is good. Your hobbies are good. Your gym is good. But here's what I'm willing to believe. Like, I'm willing to believe that almost any of those other things that you belong to don't have this sort of identity formation in your life. And like my guess is if you make a mistake at work tomorrow and you get called in to talk to your boss, your boss is not going to be saying to you like, and let me just tell you something, you're holy and chosen and loved no matter what you do. Like has anybody ever had that conversation with their boss? It's like if you mess this up one more time, not only do you fail, but you are a failure. It's like that's a lot of pressure. Man, a lot of it was somebody else's fault the whole time. And what's happening in this room, even as we gather together, the reason we gather weekly and push you to gather weekly is not because we're legalistic or we're overly religious or we're trying to control your life, but because what's happening, even in this very moment, is identity formation and protection. We're not protecting your social security number, but we're protecting the very identity of what God declares to be good, right, and true. And you scatter from this room, and everybody else is telling you your dignity and your value and worth is the way you look and what you do and can you perform and how much money you make. And then you come in here and we say, that's not true. Like, God has a better story for your life, and you are holy and chosen, beloved, not on the basis that you have the right job or the right education or the right looks, and those things can be taken away from you in an instant but instead of the finished work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on your behalf. You need to belong. It's not, like The church shouldn't be the only community that you belong to, but you do need to belong to a church because you need this in your life, not individually, but corporately. All right, and here's what Paul's going to do from here, okay? So he's kind of established, like, we have this identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He makes us holy and beloved. He's chosen us. And then Paul goes on to say, okay, well, there's a couple of tangible manifestations then of this community, both love and truth. 
Like, we need a community that's characterized both by truth and by love. A lot of times in culture, people want to swing to one side or the other and demonize the other side. But here's the problem, is that truth without love is cold, callous fundamentalism that doesn't produce true transformation in anybody's life. <coughs> love without truth is mere sentimentality that enables the self-destructive behaviors that we need to put, de- put to death in and around us. And so, like, let's exist in the tension because that's where the truth is often found that we need both truth and love, and that's really what Paul does in the remainder of this, to say that this church demonstrates both love and truth. And he starts with love. And, and look at this. Um, we'll finish verse 12 now. He says, Put on then, because of who we are, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, again, if you're anything like me, you just hear a list of things like that, and you're kind of like, wait, what? Like, what just happened? You just kind of tune out. And so, like, let's kind of process these. What Paul is saying is there's a few things that should really characterize us if we are a loving people. Love needs a definition, and Paul's giving a definition to say when we are loving, we do some of these things in the context of community. I'll tell you about three. The first he tells us about is a posture of long-suffering, a posture of long-suffering. And look at verse 13. He talks about bearing with one another, bearing with one another. Now, here's the interesting thing. Like, if any of you do the online dating thing, probably none of you have put on your profile, like, I'm looking for a mate that I can long-suffer with. Um, <laughs> Like, you probably get swiped to the next person, you know, like, well, that's weird. Like, nobody would say this. And we don't talk a lot about this, right? But, like, at the root, at the foundation of any healthy relationship is a willingness to long suffer, is a willingness to say, not if, but when we see the worst things about each other, when we recognize one another's brokenness, we don't just discard you like some other broken household item in my home, but you're a person. You have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth because you're created in the image of God. And just as God has treated me, so I will treat you. And I hope you don't miss that. Like, as God has treated you, so you are meant to treat other people. And the story of the Bible, the relationship, the story of the relationship between God and man has always been one of grace. It's been God coming, like, up against the brokenness and the futility of humanity and him not discarding us, but his long-suffering alongside us. Like, we're, we're kind of taking a break from this, but we're spending two years working through the gospel according to Mark. And one of the reasons I love the gospel so much is, like, man, Jesus sees the worst of his disciples, and he's not like, okay, like, three strikes and you're out. I mean, that's the way I function. That's the way you function. You're like, we talked about this, and you messed up again, so we're done here. But man, like, Jesus sees the worst of these guys, and he's like, I don't see who you are, but I see who you're becoming, and I see who I'm making you, and I am committed to you. We are covenanted to one another, and I will be committed to you, even if it costs me my own life. And you know what? It does cost him his own life. And that transforms in the way that we look at other people to be like, man, we're not fundamentally here for you to meet my needs, but instead we are here, even when we see the worst of one another, to long-suffer one an- with one another. Because just as God has long-suffered with me, so I will long-suffer with you as well. Let me just give a little bit of an aside to this, because I know a lot of you are new here, and you're kind of exploring, like, is this the church for me? Is this not the church for me? And I just had this conversation enough that I feel like I just need to kind of hit on this, that I feel like a lot of times people are afraid to commit to this church or any church because there's almost this unspoken expectation of like, okay, well, you guys have your act together, and I don't have my act together, and if you kind of knew me, if you knew my story, if you knew what I've done, if you knew what I did last night, if you knew what I'm still addicted to, if you knew what I'm still fighting through, um, you wouldn't even let me in this room. And it's like, that's the opposite of what we believe. 
Like the Summit Church is not a community of perfect people. It's a community of repentant people pursuing being like Jesus. And there's a really big difference in that because like we are a community then where it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay there. We're not just going to kind of enable you in your brokenness. We're going to push you towards growth in Christ. But at the same time, like it's okay not to be okay. If the qualifications for membership at the Summit Church were perfection, it would have a membership of one person. His name is Jesus Christ and the rest of us would be in big, big trouble. Okay, so I just, I just, I just, some of you think that, right? You're like, man, if you knew what I did sexually, if you knew what I did, what I'm addicted to, if you knew the drugs I'm in, it's like, let me just tell you something, my friend. We've been at this for five years, and there's nothing you can tell me that's going to surprise us anymore. We're going to be like, oh my God, I never heard of that before. We're going to be like, okay, like, welcome to the Summit Church. We're just like you. You know, like, like you will find a lot of comfort in this community. And so I just want to encourage and spur some of you on uh, with that. All right, so a posture of long-suffering, even for us as a church, we love to long suffer alongside other people as well. Second, Paul talks about our love being manifested in an eagerness to forgive. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So he tells us to forgive. This is kind of a practical implication. If you're going to be able to exist long-term somewhere and you're going to long-suffer, you're also going to forgive. But here's the thing I love about Paul. He doesn't just sort of give a hallmark statement and be like, well, forgive because you should forgive. Um, no, he, he actually gives the motivation for our forgiveness. Look at this. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So again, it's returning to that idea that the way that God has treated us, that's why we talked about our, uh, the gospel last week, the way that God treats us then transforms the way we treat other people as well. And it's easy for us to be self-righteous apart from the gospel, right? Like for a lot of us, we have the propensity to be very forgiving to people who've made the same mistakes as us. We tend to be self-righteous towards the people that we think we're better than. And so, I don't know, if somebody makes a stupid relationship mistake, if you've also made stupid relationship mistakes, it's natural for you to be empathetic towards that person and tell your own story and say, I'm really sorry. But for those of you who had like a perfect dating experience and a perfect marriage, I think you're the unicorn. Um, if that's you, it's easy for you to look at people who make terrible dating mistakes and kind of feel self-righteous and be like, well, if they were just as wise and smart as me, they wouldn't be in this place. Oh, but the problem with that is that's not the gospel. The problem with that thinking is that it negates the foundational truth that Paul established for us last week that says we are more broken than we ever realized and we are guilty of the most serious mistakes, something far more serious than making terrible relationship mistakes, but instead <laughs> sin against a holy and righteous God who gave us the very breath that fills up our lungs. And so because we have been forgiven of the worst offense, we become able to forgive others of their offenses against us also. C.S. Lewis put this really well when he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Third, Paul talks about a putting on of love. Our love is manifested by a putting on of love. Verse 14 says this, And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's really interesting if you actually, this is where I kind of want to need nerd out a little bit theologically. If you, if you translate this really literally in the original language, Paul originally wrote this in Greek. Here's how, how, here's how it kind of would be. Um, beyond and moreover, all of these things. So he's kind of saying like when you walk into a room, when you walk into a community, he's basically saying like he couldn't underline or do exclamation points back then. They didn't have that in Greek. So it's kind of like the most important thing when you belong to a community is this. Now before we even see what he says and understand it, let me just like if you're finishing that sentence, what would you put there? If you're like, okay, the reason I'm in this room in this moment is this. Probably a lot of us would say, so that my needs are met. A lot of us would say, so that I feel comfortable, so that I have friends, that I have people to do things with. 
that I'm treated fairly. And Paul says this. This is if you translate it literally. He says, put on the love, which you don't see in your translation because it's kind of a weird thing to put in there, but that's what he literally says. He says, put on the love. He has like a very specific, defined love in mind. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Oh, like it's everything that he talks about. It's like the love of the gospel. He's saying like when we enter into a community, we are meant to, in the context of our relationship, so they're bound together in a healthy way to put on the love of Jesus and the way that God has treated us in Christ so we treat others as well. Now, here's the interesting thing is that for me, I think about our relationships, and at least in my own life, maybe I'm just uniquely jacked up, which I think I am, but like, I think some of you are with me in this, where it's like in my relationships, I have the propensity to sort of put on anything other than the love. So um, I don't know, like you, you get in relationships and you kind of like wonder what that person thinks about you, like gaps emerge in the relationship, and I don't know, like your spouse does something like move your keys and you're running late. Like, for me, I don't really put on the love. I sort of put on the cynicism and the skepticism, and I'm like, she's trying to ruin my life. Like, that's the only explanation. Like, the only explanation is in this moment, like, she is trying to make me late, and she's upstairs cackling like a mad woman, and that's the only explanation. Like, it's the only explanation for why I can't find my keys. Or a lot of you feel this, like, in roommate situations. I remember before I got married, living with roommates, and, like, the tensions that would emerge, and a lot of those, like, were just so unspoken where, you know, you have a conversation about, like the cleanliness of the kitchen, and it's like, okay, we're on the same page about like, we don't just put our dishes in the sink, but we put them in the dishwasher so we can kind of coexist with one another, and then your roommate walks to the sink with her dirty plates, and you're kind of watching all this unfold from the kitchen table, and she just leaves it there, and probably in that moment, you don't put on the love, you're like, you put on the anger. You're like, all right, my friend, this is how you die, right? Like, <laughs> like, 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 I'm going to take this plastic knife and I'm going to stab you in the back with it because we talked about this thing, right? Like, it's just easy to do that. But no, like what Paul's saying, if we're going to healthily coexist uh, for a long period of time in a community, like we have to put on the love. And so what it means then is when gaps emerge in relationships, we don't put on cynicism and skepticism in the worst case scenario, but instead are actually pretty optimistic. We give people that the, the, re, the uh, re, how do I want to say this? We give people... Um, yeah, now I know. We give people the benefit of the doubt until they give us reason to believe otherwise. And what I mean then is because it's not just like, okay, because that's a nice thing to do and that's a positive way to think. But no, it's because like in the gospel, God has revealed that he's for us. He's working all things for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. And so we look at situations and we don't immediately interpret them through the lens of worst case scenario, but instead be like, there's a sovereign ruling God. And even though I don't control anything, he controls everything and he's shown that he's for me. Or man, even there's moments where people like very clearly reveal to us like their intentions aren't good. They reveal to us that they're not for us. They reveal to us that they have made a real big mistake. They reveal to us that they are broken. And in that moment, we don't put on like, okay, well, you've shown me that you're messed up. I'm out of here. Man, but we put on the love of the gospel that says, just as God is the one who absorbed my wrongs and has long suffered for my good, so I will absorb your wrongs and long suffer for your good as well. And this is what enables us to love, is not just a cultural rallying cry of love, but instead is saying there's a God who's loved us. I mean, people, here's, here's just my observation, is that people who are deeply cognizant of the fact that they've received grace tend to be gracious towards other people. Like, people who are deeply aware of the fact that they've received forgiveness tend to be really forgiving of other people. Pe people who understand that they've received love 
tend to be deeply loving towards other people. And I would just let that even be maybe a diagnosis of your own heart if you struggle with some of these things. Where do I need to press in and really understand the way God's treated me so I can treat other people like this as well? Now, Paul doesn't just talk then about kind of love, but then he goes on to talk about truth as well. Remember, we can't have one without the other. And look at what he goes on to say in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So again, he's returning to our identity. It's like Paul never wants to go too far without being like, and by the way, the motivation for doing these things is not you have to go do these things. The motivation is this is who God is. This is the way he's treated you in Christ. Okay, thanks again for the reminder. Then he goes on to say, and like, here's the truth, the truthful rhythms that should characterize you. One, he talks about us studying the Bible. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So we study the Bible. Even what we're doing in this moment, like the reason I don't just give inspirational talks, the reason that I don't try to give self-help talks, the reason I don't get up here and say, hey, here's a major issue in culture. Let me just give you my opinion about it. The reason that we open the word, the reason we spend two years, for example, studying the gospel according to Mark, and then we'll jump into something else. By the way, in the Bible as well, I know it seems a little bit repetitive, but this is the point. It's because we need the truth of who God is to break into our lives. We need it to reign and rule over our instincts and our preferences and what's popular right now. We need a lens through which we can interpret our reality, and the scriptures are that for us. And not just so that you can listen, but so that you can take it into the ebb and flow of your daily life and push other people to believe that as well. Don't miss the point that he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So you're not just a spectator, but you're a participant as well. You're, it's why we do things like city groups. So you get in there and you're like, man, like, this is the truth of who God is. This is what he feels about you. This is where you should go. Like, this is the way that you should think. Second, he talks about us singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, this is why we sing. A lot of you, like, again, I get it. Like, especially as a guy, I feel like a lot of times I'm like, there's nowhere else in culture I just get up and sing. Um, right? Like, that doesn't happen anywhere else. That's not going to happen at a bar, or, I mean, sometimes it happens at sporting events, um, but man, like, on the whole, it's like a weird thing just to be like, okay, well, this is the part where I sing, um, particularly if you're not very good at it, like me, but the reason we do this is not just because the scriptures command us to, but there's a good reason where it moves us from spectator to participant. We don't just sort of come like it's a movie and be like, oh, well, that was like a really good show, like, good, good job, or not a good job. No, like, we're participating in those moments. So, like, we study the Bible, and we see who God is, but then we corporately, as a family, participate in this act of proclaiming back to God who he is through song. It's this holistic response. That's why we sing after we preach, for example, and take communion. Again, it's not because we're like, well, we've got to fill an hour here. Like, what else are we going to? It's like, no, like, there's biblical reasons behind us. And then third, in everything else we do, we pursue following Jesus. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're not crazy about this. We're not like, okay, well, we only teach the Bible and we only as a church sing, but we do other things as well. We're involved in our community. We're involved in our city. We meet particular needs. We have particular initiatives. We have unique focuses at different times of the life of our church. But the criteria when we do things outside of studying the Bible and singing is not like, oh man, like what worked at this church over here? And it's not like, oh, well, this is like cool right now. It's like, are we following Jesus right now? Like, that's the question we're always wrestling with as leadership. Is like, are we, as a unique people called the Summit, in this unique, wonderful place called Denver, following Jesus as we think about taking on this particular initiative? So, just in that quick, because we talked a lot about the truth of the gospel last week, but Paul talks about studying the Bible, talks about singing, 
and everything else, pursuing and following Jesus. Now, I, I think the danger in all this is it's easy for this to feel like a ton of information. It's like, whoa, you just gave me like a bunch of things to do. Okay, like, let's go back to our identity and let's think about this. And, and I really, more than anything, I want you to really grab a hold of like when God's people do this, it really has the capacity to impact and to change a city and ultimately the world. I, I was thinking about this this past week. I don't know how I missed this story, um, but it, it was pretty big, like right around Christmas. Um, you know, there's this girl in New York, and uh, I, I, her her uh, her her house was burnt down. It was actually arson, and her whole family died. This was maybe two or so years ago. Her whole family died except for her. She was six at the time, uh, and she she survived because her dad, in his death, actually like covered her and protected her. And um, like I'm like in a coffee shop weeping as I read this uh, this week. I don't know how I missed this thing, and. Um, and uh, she was really badly burned. She lost limbs, and um, her appearance was dramatically transformed and changed. And she basically spent the last 18 months, two years or so, uh, in the hospital. Was finally discharged from the hospital this past Christmas. Um, she's being taken care of by her aunt now, and her aunt asks her, like, what do you want for Christmas? And she's basically like, I've been kind of is in isolation on my own for so long. Uh, all I want is Christmas cards. Um, all I want is Christmas cards. So she's, like, super optimistic about this. They go to Goodwill. They buy one of those, like, little aluminum... Christmas tree, Christmas card holder things. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It holds like 12 cards. And uh, her aunt is like super nervous about this. Like, like are we going to get more than one card? And um, y- you kind of know how these things work sometimes because of social media. Like somebody tells somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody that uh, the, the cards are still coming in. But this little girl actually gets 300,000 pieces of mail. Um, and all of them, like, super, super heartfelt as well. Like, one was a, a teddy bear um, from Hong Kong, this little boy, and he said it was his favorite uh, teddy bear, and he says, I, I hope this keeps you comfortable, and I hope uh, we can be friends. Um, and it's really crazy. Like, I'm going to start crying about it now. Um, but, gosh, it's, like, really, really crazy because they did the math and everything, and they've now found that in this, like, little town that this girl grows, uh, is, is growing up in, uh, that she's now broken the record for most mail ever received by anybody who grew up there. Um, now, <laughs> here's what's really interesting. I was reading the story was for me, um, it's interesting because like in isolation, one person sending one little girl one piece of mail is not that spectacular, right? Like a postcard isn't that spectacular. But a community of men and women united around a common vision have the, the possibility, ha- ha- have the opportunity to not just to change the life of one little girl, but to even inspire the world. And I was thinking a lot about that because it's like, for us as a church, like a lot of what we've talked about up to this moment, like it, it doesn't feel particularly awe-inspiring or dramatic. Like you forgiving when you've been wronged, it doesn't feel life-changing. It feels terrible. Like you being committed and rooted in the city when everybody else in the city lives a story of non-committance and transience and as soon as it get hard, gets hard, you leave and you go somewhere else. Like, that feels hard. It doesn't feel particularly spectacular. Like, you being generous with your life and your money, you getting to know your friends and your neighbors and coworkers for their good, you gathering weekly, you opening and studying the Bible weekly, us taking two years to go through the gospel according to Mark, us singing, us participating in communion, us baptizing, us giving ourselves for the good and the joy of this neighborhood and the city. Like, in isolation, none of those things feel spectacular. They just feel quite normal, and a lot of times incredibly, incredibly hard. But man, God's mechanism for changing the world is a community of men and women rallying around a common cause, 
for the good and the joy of the city. And the fruit of that, by like God's incredible grace, are not only individual lives changed, but ultimately a city, and we believe ultimately the ends of the earth are transformed as well. I would love to challenge you to think about how God's people doing normal life with gospel intentionality can change the life of the city that we love so much. And I just want to ask you a couple questions as we, as we finish. Um, the first is this. I would just need to see it. Thanks. <laughs> Will you consider committing to this community? I would love to challenge you to think about just committing to be part of this community. So that's those of you who aren't members here yet. Um, and I, I don't know. A lot of you, you're new, so you like just met me, and you don't know if like, I'm disingenuous when I say this or not. But the reason we want commitment, I know some of you hear that word commitment, and you're like, I'm going to go throw up, okay? I get that. But like, the reason we want commitment for you is not because we first and foremost want something from you, but we really want something for you. And we really believe kind of the popular cultural way of living today, that I just live 18 months here and 18 months there, and as soon as it gets hard, I leave and I try to reinvent myself. That is an exhausting and punishing way to live. And we would love to push you. I mean, again, I understand life will take some of you to other places, and we're not saying if you leave Denver or leave this church, you're absolutely in blanket wrong. But we would love to push some of you men and women in this room to think about, like, I really want to explore what it looks like to commit to something in this city. That's hard, but it's a good, good thing for you. And even may just be like, okay, I can't make that decision right now, but I'll come to the summit class in a couple weeks. I'll RSVP for that, and I'll show up, and I'll get a free mail, and I'll at least listen. And that's a that's a that's a baby step, right? Like baby steps towards commitment. Baby steps towards commitment. Baby steps towards commitment. And that'd be a great, great way to maybe think about doing that. Um, the second thing I would ask you is this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, will you put a, make a conscious choice to put on the love so you can healthily exist within this community? So I, I just, and, and I'm not just saying like a one-time decision. I'm just like, it is a daily choice to say, I'm going to put on the love of Christ above anything else. Rather than selfishness, rather than cynicism, rather than entitlement, I'm going to put on the love. When I come in this room and I walk into the church, when I walk into my family, when I walk into my friendships, when I walk into any sort of relationship that God has entrusted me with, that I'm going to make the conscious decision not to be entitled, not to be selfish, not to run away as soon as things get hard, but I'm going to put on the love in just the way that God has treated me, so I will treat the people around me as well. That's, in the words of Paul, that is what binds together a healthy community. All right, we're going to... Respond now through the taking of communion and through song. I'll explain that, uh, but let's pray, and we'll uh, move from here. God, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you for the way that you've treated us. You've loved us. You've made us holy. You've made us accepted. You've made us blameless. The opinion of the one person in the universe whose opinion really matters has been secured, and it is so incredibly good in Christ. And so I pray that we would spend more time meditating on that than the way that anybody else treats us, and then that would be the criteria by which we could healthily coexist within community. God, we thank you for community. We thank you that you've created us in the image of a communal God, and consequently we are communal beings, and it is why we crave to be around other people. And I pray that we would not satisfy for any counterfeits. There are so many in culture today, and it's not that they're intrinsically evil, but they are not the fullness of what you have for us. And so I pray as men and women 
who I pray are pursuing and following Jesus, that we would not just do that in isolation, but in the context of community, and we would do normal life with gospel intentionality and the fruit of that, of these many hands and feet giving themselves to the one cause of making you famous, would you be made famous in the city that we love so much? We just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.